Welcome to Cycling Explained, hosted by Brent from Pro Cycling Bets. Cycling Explained attempts to demystify the world of professional cycling and delves into the variables surrounding the nuanced layers of the sport itself. In each episode, we'll explore one variable and how it affects the riders, the teams, the tactics, and the betting markets. Want to begin to watch cycling but don't know where to start? Interested in betting on races but have no idea how to find good value picks? You've come to the right place. Hey everyone, Cycling Explained with Brent, and we got a guest, Will, coming on. He knows a bit more about cycling than Nick, so we're going to dig into a specific variable topic that might propel riders to ride faster during a race or for a team to change their tactics. This today we'll be talking about UCI points. So, Will, what do you know currently about UCI points? Yeah, I'd say I, I don't know all the rules and all the um, you know different point totals, but I know especially for those kind of like second tier teams, it's it's a big motivator for which races they choose to do, you know how the tactics play out during the race. Um, I know the recent changes for top ten finishes in in stages has changed you know the tactics, especially at the uh, for the Grand Tours. Yeah, and to discuss more. Yeah, it's a good starting point. I feel like it's a whole battle that people don't realize is going on between those those lower level teams. But essentially, it's similar to relegation in football or, or soccer for the North American audience, where you get relegated up and down between the levels. And it was implemented just recently, just a couple of years ago, and it's on a tri-annual cycle, unlike the annual cycle of, of most teams in soccer, which plays better so that for sponsors coming in, you know, they know that they'll have three years compared to one year of being with a team, and it just makes the process a little bit easier. It's also kind of interesting that it, it, it it's also for the Olympics as well, so it also plays into the Olympics and how many hmm. members can go through the Olympics, which I find quite interesting. But you're right, it's 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 some of those teams are at the top level, like Yambo Visma, Ineon, so you don't have to worry. They're gonna they're gonna collect a number of points, and the points they collect they get by their riders winning stages within Grand Tours, winning races or one day stage races. And recently, uh, they just had their first relegation last year. So two teams moved down, and then two teams moved up. And there was some caveats there where Israel Premier Tech got to still get invites to all the races because of how this was like the first relegation, and they got relegated. They also changed how many points teams get per race. So before classics mattered a lot, and now Grand Tour stages matter a lot. We're both Canadian here. Let's take, for example, Derek G. So Derek G, uh, we were both watching the Giro, and we loved every moment of that, watching Derek go for it. The not negative race. He collected 980 UCI points, which for Israel Premier Tech was huge because Israel Premier Tech, we'll call them IPT, because it's easier. They're, they're on a lower tier of the 18 teams that are allowed in world tour and so it really kind of boosted their their ability to to get up there because it's a triannual cycle but it's also a one-year cycle in the sense that there's 20 uci teams that get invited to races world tour level races and there's only 18 world tour level teams so there's always two carve out and those two carve outs get given to the wild cards so the teams who have performed the best in the prior year so israel should get those wild cards for the next year uh, where they'll get invited to those world tour level races so i just spoke for a lot there does, does that kind of mm -hmm. clarify some some stuff for you do you have any questions yeah it does like i always knew you know like i hear the relegation announcements but uh I didn't know the whole wildcard process and how that works. So it's interesting, interesting to hear there. 
Do you think, like, like I know they made that change, the, the last World Tour change, like, mid-season. How, how does that affect the, the planning? Because obviously a lot of these riders are, you know, trying to peak for certain races and planning their training plans, you know, months in advance. Yeah, no, that's a very fair and valid, valid point. Because from a rider's perspective, it was actually at the end of last mm-hmm. year when they were doing the relegation, right? They have a bunch of these riders whose training plans just got super messed up because the teams at the bottom of the ranking were just like scrambling. They were like, oh, we need to get this many points. And so they were sent to all these one-day races. They had a bunch more race days on their schedule compared to usual. So usually races racers will go for about 70 race days per year now, which is a lot. It's pretty heavy. And it's heavy because the race days matter so much. Like they're raced at such a high level and high caliber that it, it, you no longer are using. They used to use races as like a, a training days sometimes in the past. But now every race is super high caliber. But again, you, you brought up a great point. That riders have to peak for these races now. The intensity of modern cycling is that you can't come to these races half-baked. And so for these teams to, these lower level teams, they are less able to compete, not only because of their, like their team roster isn't as strong, but they also have to deal with the constant stress of being relegated at the same time. It's, it's, I'm sure, you know, from your work life and my work life and, and everyone knows that when you're under stress, you probably perform worse after a certain point. And it's the same thing for these teams, right? They cannot perform the best. Most likely because you're shipping around all these riders all the time in this chaotic mayhem, whereas the big teams can just sit back, chill, know they're confirmed to not be relegated, and really peak their riders. Yeah, interesting. I think we've talked about so far purely in the context of the the men's peloton, but is the women's rule similar, or um, how does that work? Yeah, the women's world tour is similar in that uh, there's there's less teams, but uh, there is relegation now from what i believe i still need to dig in there mm-hmm. a little bit and it's a great question uh there is less there's more gray area with respect to the the ladies women's tour and what happens there but the relegation does still occur and there's only so many teams that can be qualified to ride at the world tour level the relegation system i believe was implemented last year so it, it was kind of on a two-year or three-year hiatus differing from the men's which was implemented four years ago i believe in 2020 they'll still be able to be relegated as well yeah it's interesting because i think watching the women's uh races it seems at least uh, you know the classics that with the smaller women's teams the individual riders end up riding a higher percentage of the races but there's also less races to the season so you know how that works and and you know, yeah there's a lot going on. i'm gonna jump in here just because some pundits think that the world tour for the women's has expanded too fast hmm. which is an interesting little tidbit where the teams have grown so quickly, but they're still not super allowed to be super huge. So I think it's 15 or 16 riders, but the number of race days has dramatically increased. So what you said is, is, in, is true in the sense that they have to use these riders more and more often. And so the race days that they're facing is, is quite high. And a lot of these riders are super young, so you don't want to burn these riders out. So you're facing this challenge of, do we race all the races? And so some world tour teams, for example, have to attend all the world tour races it's like a kind of written into that contract and so that becomes stressful but then also you know you have teams like zaf racing on the women's side where there's not a lot of enforcement of who can start their own team so zaf was a team in the women's world tour where it was started by someone who basically said like oh i can't afford a men's world team so let me start a women's world team because it's cheaper 
and then never actually paid the riders for a few months uh, before the team folded. But you had these riders basically riding for free and it became a whole issue there. It is worth considering whether women's cycling is expanding too fast. Uh, I'm a big proponent of women's cycling. I think it's super exciting. The race is a little bit shorter. It's got a high caliber of, of competitors in the field now. So I'd like to see it expand, but at the same time, like anything, you don't want something to grow too fast too soon. Like even in business with companies that, that grow too fast, have too high evaluation, let's take WeWork, for example, you know, that that expanded way too fast, uh, probably didn't really do due diligence. And so it's the same thing is happening in the Women's World Tour, where the due diligence isn't being done on these teams, and it could be leading to issues like Zaf racing. So that's kind of intriguing there. Yeah, um, for sure. And it's worth noting, like these UCI points are awarded throughout the season, but I'm going to cut this part. But anyway, it, it's also worth noting that the it's UCI who's doing the enforcement and the UCI is generally seen as supremely lax in enforcement of all their policies. So hmm. you probably know as a, as a bike racer that so, like socks can only be so high, right? You have yep. this sock length rule where previously in the 2010s, they were enforcing this sock length rule to a, a good extent. Like they were like pretty strict on it. But then recently they've, the past few years, they've been like, eh, we don't really care anymore. And so hmm. you see these riders wearing these socks super high and it's, it's a whole issue with the UCI, whether or not they enforce gray areas. And cycling is interesting as a sport, I believe, because of the gray areas that are involved in the sport. There's a lot of nuanced layers and things that can go wrong, depending on the day. But also, there's a lot of rules that aren't enforced, either be it based on the race commissaire not enforcing the rule, or the UCI not enforcing the rule. And this leads to a lot of discussion around whether or not they should have or, or should not have which is proves to be interesting but also proves in certain cases to be really a bad idea which for example like not enforcing that a new team has the funding required to support the riders that's unacceptable right whereas mm -hmm. not enforcing sock length is yeah. less concerning right it's not like a rider's they can put food in their mouths kind of without getting funding. So, yeah, 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 it's, it's really interesting for, for myself on the, the, the point side as well. It's like, what are they really trying to track? Like what's the, you know, cause there's obviously some thing like more UCI points for the, you know, for winning the tour de France than for winning, you know, some one day, you know, stage race in Canada, for example, like I think even at the world tour level, but they're obviously treated pretty differently. Um, do you think that they're trying to track sponsorship, like viewership, where it's like, it should be like, if you get a lot of UCI points, that should mean that your sponsors also got a lot of value and it's, and it's like a way of providing that, or is that not really what they're going for? It's, it's not really what they're going for. I think the UCI wanted to have an ability to regulate fairly the caliber of riders and teams that are in certain races, hmm. right? So there's less gray area involved. So it's, positive in my mind it's especially positive that in the following years they'll be implementing this policy where you have to be within the top 50 teams next year to attend a grand tour and i'll get into what that means in a little bit and then the following year you have to be within the top 
40 best teams. And then the following year after that, you have to be in the top 30 best teams. Hmm. And so what's that trying to stop is you have 22 teams that will attend the Grand Tours. You have 18 World Tour teams. You have two wild cards from the teams who performed the best in the prior year. And then you'll have two teams that the race organizers can choose to invite based on whatever they want. And whatever they want is local. Exactly. So for the Giro, you have these Italian Conti, uh, we don't use Conti anymore, the dot one level teams where they just don't perform well. And all they do is ride in a break for 50 kilometers at the start of the race to get sponsors to see their you know, this, get to see their jerseys on TV and get money that way, but they really add nothing to value to the race. Mm-hmm. And the UCI wants to avoid having that happen. So, which is why they've implemented this new policy where you can only invite like X level of team to the race. And we think that's a good thing because overall we want a high caliber Peloton and we want there to be a bunch of you know, with, with more high-quality riders, you're going to get a higher-quality race. At the end of the day, that's that's generally what happens. You've seen this in the Giro this year. When a bunch of the high-quality riders dropped out, the caliber of the racing kind of decreased. Mm-hmm. And so you have that, that competition at the top. Now, I'm going to go on a tangent here a little bit where I watched some mountain biking the previous weekend. And it was incredibly exciting because the caliber of riders at the top... The perf- the perverse the professionalism of the the filming and the production quality was really high, but the caliber of riders at the top, you had Tom Pidcock, but you also had about six or seven riders who were also there with him, which made it super interesting compared to Cyclocross, where you have three riders, Tom Pidcock, Well Fan Artman, and MVDP, who dominate the sport. There's no kind of they, they come and then everyone else is two minutes behind them at the end of the day. And that's not fun to watch. The yeah. same thing is in the, the Grand Tours. You know, you, you want all teams to be on a similar caliber. Otherwise, it's just not fun to watch too. So why waste those two spots? That was my long-winded winded answer of that's another reason why they've implemented this UCI ranking system to be able to judge teams effectively and, and who to invite to race. Yeah, how does it how does it play into the like the different jersey competitions and some of those other things. Because I know, you know, when you're watching the race, like they'll often talk about it a lot. Uh, you, know, you see riders going for it. Sometimes it makes it more interesting, but oftentimes like, you know, as, as the fan, you really care about like the wins, the Sage wins, the the Tour wins. Um, are those kind of like bonus bonuses for the riders and, and, you know, things that they're throwing in? Or do you find them like a meaningful contribution to the race overall? The jerseys themselves or the are there points for those jerseys? I guess I'm asking both, but let's start with the points. Yeah, for sure. So I think what they've they've changed this year is that the stages and Grand Tours matter a ton. So you'll have a lot more riders who are attempting to win those stages. You'll get UCI points also for the jerseys as well, but the jerseys are more that romantic aspect of riders chasing them, right? They get to keep them in their closet after they've got them for a day. Teams also want that as a, as a way of saying, like, hey, we wanted to wear the yellow jersey for a day during... They'll have goals when they go mm-hmm. into a Grand Tour or a stage race. And, you know, one of their goals, let's say Team DSM with uh, Lechnickson in the Giro, they, their goal was to win a stage and to wear the jersey once. And they did both. So it, it's usually a goal of them to get the jersey but they don't necessarily want to get the jersey for the UCI points. 
those are those are separate concerns usually but if you're going for the jersey you'll probably end up with some uci points to boot just because of the nature of how those jerseys work Hmm. um but it does bring up a good point where certain riders now who can stage hunt effectively are more valuable than riders who can't or or, or are not as good at stage hunting so you, you actually may be able to uh, a GC rider who wins the entire Grand Tour may get less UCI points than a rider like Derek G who comes second in almost every single stage just because of like the balance of has kind of shifted in, in that sense, which is, is kind of intriguing. And it also leads into an interesting discussion around contracts and who signs who and where r- riders go because you'll have... This is kind of nuance, actually quite interesting in the sense that will... Will GC riders now go more to the best teams because the best teams don't care so much about winning stages hmm. compared to the stage hunting riders who aren't as good at GC? Will they go to the teams that will need those stages to maintain their world tour level status by the UCI points? And will that create a cycle? Like it will. Because then the lower level teams will never be great at GC because they hire riders who are only good at stage hunting and not good at GC. And the upper level teams hire GC level riders who are good at GC because they don't really need the, the, the stage hunters because they already have a bunch of good quality riders. We'll see if that happens. I'll do some analysis maybe later in the year. But yeah. Yeah, I wonder if we saw that this year at the Giro because it seems like you know compared to the past years or the tours like a really high proportion or like almost no stages were won by the GC riders like there was a lot of breakaway wins even on the other the you know non-breakaway stages you know other uh, riders from the group winning other than the GC favorites they're just kind of marking each other and, and almost felt like kind of two two separate parallel races and I guess that's part of cycling to some extent but I wonder if the the points uh, changes contributed to that at all. Yeah, it, it could very well be. I think it's a really interesting data problem that teams don't necessarily play into. I think there's a bunch of statistics that aren't being done and how that affects everything and how one variable affects another. I believe PCS Pro Cycling Stats does a good job sometimes of digging in on one specific aspect of those stats and, and how it affects the other riders. But I think there's so much more that can be done that isn't done with respect to tactics and how teams make decisions. And I think a team could do a bunch of data analysis and figure out what a team is actually going to do, given their current predicament in the UCI rankings, which could be super beneficial to them. One interesting change that happened was the UCI now takes the top 20 riders per team and counts that into their UCI points calculation. So riders will obviously collect points over the course of the season. And previously, 30 riders on a, on a world to a level team. There's a bit less, I believe, on pro level teams and so on so forth. But of those, they're only collecting 10 and now they're collecting 20 riders. Hmm. And so what this means, it, I mean, we could dig in here, but it, it could mean a, a vast array of things. And certain teams that now have a breadth of good riders probably will be performing better than a team that has a strong core of, of riders who, and then a bunch of domestiques who don't really perform super well. Teams like 
that stand out to me immediately are like Ineos. Ineos has uh, an insane roster. Actually, sorry, take that back. I meant UAE. UAE has probably mm. the most stacked roster. And I yep. believe it also leaves a lot of dysfunction in their team where they have too many stars, too many horses that they can use in embarrassment of riches. And so they, I believe, that will help them this year and in the following years in the rankings just because all their riders will be performing so well at all these races. And since they have more than 10 good riders, they'll gain the benefit of the actual 20 riders compared to 10. No, that's interesting. I didn't know that. So that meant that like in the past, if you were the 11th best rider and you'd, you'd want a stage, you know, good for you, you on the stage, but you, you weren't getting contributing any points to your team in that case. Yeah, 100%. You weren't contributing any points to your team. And they've also expanded the pool of riders who get points in the stages. So previously, I believe it was only top five or top 10, probably top 10 in a stage that got points. And now it's top 20. So they've also expanded the number of riders within a stage who will get it. So you may have riders, which is interesting. You can't bet on the top 20 riders. So it's not that interesting, but it would have been interesting because now you have riders whose mentality is shifting a little bit and team's mentality is shifting a little bit about what matters. So it's no longer just the top 10 that matters, but it's also top 20. So you'll be having riders fight differently for different positions and what didn't matter now does matter. Hmm. Again, like previously top 10 is like this kind of romanticized, oh, I came top 10 in the race. And it was exciting and people went for it regardless of the UCI points that were generated. But now you have this added emphasis that top 20 matters. And so you might get a little bit of different racing involved because of this secondary fight that's going on. Yeah, I could definitely see that changing some of the, the sprint dynamics. Like typically you'll see like the lead out, final lead out riders um, still placing, you know, if not top 10, at least top 20. And so I wonder if that'll change where, because they're in that great position, they'll give a strong lead out and then, you know, let their, their teammate come through, but still try and hang on for, you know, a little bit harder for a 12th versus a 15th and, you know, now a little bit of extra points. Um, yeah, that, yep. that may change the, the amount of racing going on, right? Like versus like just the top people right at the front racing and everyone else can drop them back. Like might make it more chaotic. I, I don't know. Chaotic is a great thing because you, you have the obvious factor of, so I guess recently they ha- I was watching Brussels Classic on the weekend. Good race. Anybody go back and watch it. Fun. Derek G also did his stuff and, and almost took out the win. But you had these two groups, right? You had the, the main breakaway group that was racing, which consisted of 15 riders. And then they went for their sprint. But then you also had the group behind who went for their sprint as well, like the main peloton group. Would they have gone for that sprint if the top 20 didn't matter from a UCI perspective. And what it does is it makes the races personally a little bit more interesting for us, I think. You get to see two sprints instead of one. But it also does lead to that chaos, which could increase the risk for riders, right? Because sprinters, sprints are inherently risky and they cause a lot of crashes. And so do we, do we want that to happen? Do we want more sprinters? Do we want more sprints to occur? I think it's a balance, right? From a viewer, it's kind of like it's kind of like motos in the in the peloton where c- people were complaining, especially after the rider died in 2019, where he got run over by a motorbike. Where you you, you don't want too many motos because of moto pacing and also dangerous, but at the same time you want high caliber and quality filming. And you want to to show the race and have good 
images for the viewers who are watching, but at the mm -hmm. same time, you don't want people to be run over by motorbikes. We want more sprints because they're interesting, but we also don't want riders crashing. So trying to find that balance is... Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think, uh, yeah, you've talked about breakaways um, and sprints a lot. Have there been any changes to the GC point allocations or will this not really affect that because those top GC riders are, are going, like they're so motivated to, to, to you know, win a grand tour or even win like a, a week long race that point changes don't really affect their mentality. Yeah. I think most of the strong, I think we touch on this to a degree in the sense that the strongest GC riders are at the strongest teams. Yep. So you'll have, they won't really care about the UCI points. So those riders will just be riding for GC, which is, which is great. I think it affects riders on those, those lower caliber teams who still have G GC hopes, uh, but aren't able to maybe do them because they need to, to ride these one day races beforehand and then not be able to peak for, for their GC race, which is kind of unfortunate in that sense. But, you know, at the end of the day, I think life's not fair. I think <laughs> cycling isn't fair either to some degree. You always have these teams that will have more money before there's a price cap, like uh, before there's a, I think eventually all sports come to a time where they need to implement a salary cap or some sort of spending cap. And I think we'll eventually see that in cycling. F1 took a while for that to implement. I think it was implemented last year, where they, maybe two years ago, where they implemented a salary cap. We saw that in all the professional sports in North America, eventually imp implemented a salary cap. I think this will, just how, just like how the UCI implemented these these points, uh, the relegation system, like it was implemented in soccer, and so soccer, um, I, I essentially salary cap will come. I think mm -hmm. is my prediction. If we're going to do predictions, it's just not going to happen right away. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see what the the motivating factors are. If it's you know the smaller teams kind of banding together to say, hey, this isn't fair, um, especially as we're starting to get more like nation states coming into the play with with teams like that mm. seems like potentially harder to compete with are, are you saying that you, you you're saying that you uh uae has unlimited money because they have uh unlimited oil reserves because yeah i i'd agree it's it seems a little bit unfair that you have teams that basically have infinite money and then teams who are fighting for their life like israel premier tech who probably can't afford to pay derek g what he's worth after the zero so we'll see mm -hmm. Yeah, I know. I know it's a challenge to, to get sponsorships and monies for for most of the teams, but um, obviously some are, you know, writing large checks. And you know, as a writer, you're not going to turn that down. So, um, yeah, changes the game. It does change the game, and it's interesting what makes riders sign with teams. We can probably do a whole other podcast on that. But then you have teams. The one teams, the one thing teams do have going for them that don't have a lot of money is the ability to provide opportunity for riders. So Biniam Gourmet, who just came back after a bad crash in the spring, props to him, he came fourth at the Brussels Classic on the weekend. Good to see he's healing up well. But he signed with Intermarché Circus Wanti because he was, even though he was worth more than they could offer, because Intermarché, you know, is a small team, doesn't have a lot of money, they offered him opportunity. So like, Gourmet, you know, you're going to be able to ride as the leader in all these classic races and then in a few GC races will also make you the leader. So, but there's only so many slots that they can do that for riders, right? So these yep. teams have uh, one or two leaders per race and they'll probably have 
alternating races, I would say there's probably five leaders per team that a team can support with opportunities. Other than that, you have 25 riders who they can't always provide with the GC opportunities. So again, then money comes to being an issue once you kind of max out those riders. But you'll always have, which is, but it's what I'm trying to get at is it's always nice that you'll have the chance for a smaller team to have a good rider because they can provide them with a guaranteed opportunity, unlike on UAE, for example, where there's probably 15 good GC contenders that the UAE has, and they can't provide all 15 with GC opportunities at all the races. So yep. they, you might have one, some of these good riders who, who sign with these lower level teams and then perform remarkably well um, just because they have the opportunity to do so. Yeah, yeah, interesting. I'm sure it changes to like what stage you're career at, whether you're trying to, you know, like, you, you know, you think you have that potential to be a top GC rider and you want to prove it to people rather than going through the, the ranks of the domestic versus you're, you're established, you kind of know where you're at, maybe like a, a mica or a full mica, you know. Yeah, you, you, yeah, like you're, and that's where the age of the rider comes in too, right? If you think about it, I was thinking about it on the weekend where, once a rider has a family, uh, they get probably get a little smarter, right? Like riding and bike racing is inherently dangerous. And you probably want to maybe be a little bit less aggressive as a rider once you have a family. But you also may want to take that golden, those golden handcuffs or a giant bag of money from UAE once you're past your prime or you've realized that you're kind of like on the downward trajectory and UAE will probably drop that cash because they drop the cash on everyone. Whereas if you're a young rider who's feisty and aggressive and wants the chances for more GC, then you may sign with one of these smaller level teams just to be able to get that opportunity compared to having to stick it out as a domestique at one of these larger level teams that can potentially pay you more. So yeah, interesting. It's also intriguing that they've done a distinction for the monuments i think the one last change that they made this year was that the monuments will have a lot more points allocated to them so you'll probably have even greater competition at those monuments than you did in the past and some teams will send more stacked teams to those monuments which already increases their kind of status so that's kind of a little intriguing but yeah we'll see for the points, do they do they list out the races one by one, or do they have certain classifications like monuments? Like, I, like I, we always talk about monuments, and is that a like colloquial concept, or is that a like this is an official designation of this is mm. a monument? Yeah, it's a defined concept that there's five monuments. Uh, Milan, I think I can list them: Milan, San Remo, Il Lombardia. Il Lombardia is the only one that happens in the fall. You have Tour of Flanders. You have Perry Roubaix. And then the last one is, uh, don't quote me on that one. Liege Bast on Liege? Liege Bast on Liege, yes. And so these monuments, most of them happen in the spring, and then Il Lombardi happens in the fall. And they're just well-known races that are considered to be the oldest, hardest, and most prestigious one-day events in, in men's road cycling. And they're usually too, like, super long, too. So they're around 250 kilometers, and their courses don't change from year to year. So additions and subtractions of the segments in the course can be done, but the integral parts of the course are generally kept. But it, it does bring to, to light that a lot of pundits and, and people think, and I personally think that some races should become monuments that aren't right now. So Strade Bianche 
is you know 20 years old and it kind of introduced the idea of gravel racing to cycling should it become a monument or races such as Amstel Gold Race in the Ardennes, which are like the well-known mm -hmm. Ardennes classic. Should this race become a monument? Um, how is that defined? Who actually defines it? I think UCI has just has like a one line in their in their main document that says these are the these are the monuments. But whoever made that decision, why that decision was made, is is one of those gray areas. I'm sure that is just rife in cycling. And so having more kind of maybe rules around how a monument is defined would be beneficial. Like, okay, we're going to vote every five years that these are a monument because then not only does a monument bring with it more UCI points, but the amount of sponsorship money, the amount of viewership, the amount of the caliber, the riders that go to the race is all super beneficial for the race organizer. And also cycling is a sport. Like, event. you know, I know for myself, like, I don't, you know, some of the, the one day races I'll, I'll watch, but like you sit down for a monument, it's like, it's going to be entertaining. It's, it's going to be a real race. Like they're going to like whoever's in it, it's going to be fighting right to the very end. Um, you know, more so than your average one day stage, like one day race or, um, you know, stage uh, of the tour. Yeah. Yeah, hundred percent. You get now on GCN, you get wall to wall coverage of all the monuments. So you'll have poor announcers. Well, not poor announcers. They get paid money to announce for six, seven hours. But you have uh, filming from start to finish, which you don't have in a lot of races. In a lot of races, you have filming that starts eighty kilometers out from the finish, which is a lot better than it used to be. Especially in world in women's world tour level cycling, they used to only have it like fifteen kilometers out, and then you're like. I, I think you here? know just as well how did we get here right like a, a cycling race is, is not the last 15 kilometers there's so much nuance that goes on so much uh difference and so that is inherently an intriguing part of the cycling race and we're, we're kind of missing that if we don't get the full kind of end-to-end -end coverage and I don't know about you, but what I tell people is the most interesting part of the cycling race is, is right at the start and sometimes at the end, because sometimes the end is like, you know, a bunch sprint, whatever. It is what it is. But at the start, it's almost always interesting because you'll almost always have a break forming these days and the, the, how the break is formed, who's allowed in the break, how that happens is superbly intriguing compared to what may be a less than intriguing finish if, for example, Pogacar goes 40 kilometers out and just decides to take the win. I love Pogacar. I'm happy for him to go 40 kilometers out. It's just not necessarily the most intriguing finish if someone's dominating the race compared to at the start. Everyone's on a level playing field. Yeah, so. yeah. when they already, like, if you're, if you're tuning in and someone already has a gap that you know they're going to they're gonna make it, then it's like, okay, well... You know, we're just we're just watching them roll in basically at this point um, there's no tension yeah 100 percent. anyway i think this is a good place to wrap up for today we discussed the uci classification if the viewers have any questions any thoughts for improvements to the podcast please feel free to leave them in the comments below remember to like subscribe all that jazz we just want people to be as excited about bike racing as we are and again thanks to will for coming on we hope to have them in future episodes and discuss future concepts. All right, guys. Thanks much. Thanks for listening. This has been Brent from Pro Cycling Bets, and we look forward to you listening to the next one. We'd greatly appreciate you leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts 
or whichever podcast player you're listening from, signing up to our newsletter at ProCyclingBets.com or following us on social media, specifically subscribing to ProCyclingBets on YouTube. All the links are in the show notes. Ciao.